Hello and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to find out about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder of RJ Metrics. You can find out more about me and find out about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right. Today on the show, we have David Wallace, Senior Business Intelligence Analyst at RJ Metrics. David teaches us about the spinal neural network of frogs, the one tool he can't live without, and why we're all still stuck in spreadsheets. Here's our conversation. I'm very excited about my guest today. Guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm David Wallace. I am the Senior Business Intelligence Analyst here at RJ Metrics. So, David, uh, when you're uh, explaining to your family who are maybe not super up on what it means to be a senior business intelligence analyst, what, what do you tell them that you do for a living? Uh, so this, this is actually a skill that I think comes with practice, Yes, uh, is getting people to understand exactly what you do mm-hmm. while also really, really hoping that they care at the same time. <laughs> How often does that come Because <laughs> <laughs> what can end up happening, I've noticed, and this is less with family but more with other people, is that... As if I really got into the gory details of what I do, uh, you can tell that people give you the, the fading away. <laughs> you can see people fading away halfway through the explanation. So typically what I, what I say is I, I try to keep it pretty high level. And I think this is actually a relatively relatively true to what I do here is uh, I, try to t- I try to take data and turn it into information that can help influence people's decisions. That is from a very high level what I do. And it seems like that gets the most, that gets the best response out of people so far. And what, what would you say is the difference between data and information? Yeah, so uh, I think data is, is essentially just that, right? Uh, in my opinion, whenever people say they're data-driven, I don't truly believe people are data-driven because data is, to me, is just literally raw data, right? Um, I think people are driven off of information that is accumulated from data. Uh, that's the difference. Um, so when I say I work with data, it doesn't really mean much. It's saying when you work with data, it could simply mean that you're just cleansing data all day. Um, but I think the key here is, is the, the, turning of, the turning of data into actual information to be consumed. Got it. And second. Uh, so when you're talking to someone who is a little bit more up on the industry or someone who works here, like let's say someone starts at RJ Metrics tomorrow, uh, how would you explain to them what it is exactly that you do? Sure. I, to be quite honest, I don't think it'd be too much different. I, I like to think I like the high level explanation because yeah. it's a little bit all encompassing, which I think part of my job is like somewhat all encompassing, right? Um, like I can certainly explain the, the back end of things and say that you know uh, I'm responsible for maintaining the infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, of our of our data warehouse, making sure we have and we're collecting all the data we have and then placing that data into an environment that's suitable for consumption. Mm-hmm. But um, again, like I don't, like people don't necessarily need to know all that, that low level information. Uh, I like to keep it high level for mostly everyone and say that I'm responsible for, again, for turning that data into information that can be consumed by the leaders here. So the leaders are, are always more informed, essentially. Got it. And how long have you been in this role for? Uh, I've been in this role for just about a year now. And what were you doing before that? How'd you get to where you are today? Uh, before this, I was actually I was an implementation analyst here, uh, which means that uh, I was responsible for onboarding new clients onto the RJ Metrics platform. Got it. And what about before that? Before then, I was in grad school. So this is my first real job. Uh, let me say, you're doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I was in grad school for uh, neuroengineering. I was in a research lab at Drexel University. Uh, so. Doing similar things that I am, not in the same field, but doing similar things that I'm doing today as far as like data cleansing and data analysis. Uh, even though I, I worked in a, a wet lab, which is doing animal research, mm-hmm. but the majority of my time there was spent doing data analysis. So not too much different. A little bit, maybe maybe a little bit more advanced techniques since you're wearing, working in a much more narrow scoped uh, field, but not too much different to be honest. What, what animal or animals were you working with? The frog. The yeah. frog? The frog. Wow. <laughs> the one frog. I, that, wow. You must have gotten a lot of out of that little guy. Or the... uh, frogs, I, I, I have a very, I love animals, but I certainly had a point in my life where I had a very love-hate relationship <laughs> with the frog. The frog is, uh, for someone who has relatively shaky hands, mm-hmm. the frog is a brutal surgery patient. Wow. So, <laughs> given, given its size. 
And what was what kind of research were you doing on frogs? Sure, I was uh, investigating the spinal neural networks of, of frogs. Uh, theoretically, the same could be applied to spinal neural networks anywhere, but we did it in the frog because of uh, certain reflexes that the frog has. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of your body's natural reflexes are actually handled directly or solely in the spinal cord. Hmm. Um, and we, we've evolved, human beings have evolved to, in order to get those reflexes out fast, the reason it's a quick reflex is because it happens very fast, right? And actually our bodies have evolved so that uh, we don't even need uh, signals to travel to the brain to be comprehended in order to have a reflex. They can actually be comprehended in, comprehended in quote, quotes, quote unquote comprehended. Uh, He's in, air quotes. <laughs> Yeah, we can actually have these signals for reflexes be, be understood and comprehended in the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a smaller path to travel so that the signal can happen faster and the reflex can happen faster. Interesting. Yep. And uh, was there some, and I imagine, like I know it takes a really long time and, and a bunch of people to, to come up with any new thing, was there a specific thing about reflexes in frogs that either you were a part of or that you were trying to figure out while you were Sure. Doing? So we were trying to make a case, and it's, been, it's forgive me, it's been a while here. Sure. We were trying to make a case that there are, uh, look, Essentially, there are modules in the spinal cord, uh, and what that means is that the the network is set up uh, inherently so that like it becomes it be, essentially it becomes easier for a signal to be comprehended in the spinal cord in a certain way. Given like each individual module handles a certain fact or a certain mm -hmm. signal path about this reflex path, uh, and we think our theory was that it's it was an evolutionary trait that these mo these modules eventually uh, came to be. Uh, it's a little bit hard to explain because like it's it's. Again, it's like a narrow scope field. Yeah. But we uh, overall the high level messages that we were trying to we were trying to uh, confirm that these these neural network modules exist in the spinal cord. Got it. And do they were you able to confirm that? Uh, as you probably know in science, one yeah. person is often very unlikely to confirm anything. Yeah. Uh, did we have supporting evidence for it? Yes. Got uh, it. But confirm no. Okay. Cool. And do you know like is is that, is that lab? Made progress on that and confirmed it since you left. That lab uh, has made progress in that front. Yeah. Uh, st still unconfirmed. It's very much. It's very much a theory still that we're that we're actively looking for evidence still. That lab is also doing other things in, in uh, animals such as rats, given uh, using uh, optogenetics now. So, what is optogenetics? Optogenetics is uh, essentially using light to trigger a response in a neuron. So. Uh, what we can do is we can actually trigger certain responses in neurons by injecting neurons with a light sensitive, uh, I think it's, it's from algae. Um, so basically when light hits the, the, the cell, uh, it triggers that neuron to fire. So we, can, we, can, we have the ability now to like actively fire single neurons using light. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what's the genetics part of that? I think that that's the injection of a certain... Uh, I, I forget. I think it's a virus. I believe it's. Oh, it's, it's and then, I actually could be wrong about that, but I think it's virus induced it, or it's viral, virally induced. Uh, then that cell becomes active in the in the neuron. So that virus puts in the DNA, which codes for the thing, which correct. is light yes, sensitive. That, which, correct. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure that I'm doing like I'm not doing that explanation justice, but uh, that's I think that's the gist of it. That is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was I was going to make a joke about that lab falling apart after you <laughs> left, but now that I understand that they're controlling neurons with light, I have decided not to make that joke. Yes, we are officially in the future. Yep. All right. Great. <laughs> uh, I, for one, welcome our late uh, genetic overlords. Uh, cool. Okay, switching gears back to uh, the stuff that you do now. Um, I know sometimes uh, you're working really hard on something, on analysis, and it doesn't pay off, or sometimes you do something really simple and it pays off in a huge way. Uh, can you think of an example of something that uh, had like a really high ratio of economic value to the amount of sophistication that required to do it? Like something where we as a business had huge benefits from something that wasn't that hard? Yeah, um, yeah, so I think that there's this, there's this actually this, I, maybe I'll take this a little bit high level here, not, sure. not necessarily a specific example, but I have been trying to do this thing here, and I think it's actually paid off pretty well, where uh, it's actually, I don't know, you may know about this, uh, Daniel Kahneman has this idea of outside view and inside view. Have you ever heard of that when, it comes, sure. when it comes to forecasting? Uh, it's, it's, it's related to a lot of things, but specifically when it comes to forecasting, there's this, there's this theory that there's an outside view and there's an inside view that, people, mm -hmm. that certain people take. The inside view is essentially when someone uh, is trying to forecast what will happen in this specific scenario, and they essentially jump right into the weeds and they say, okay, it's okay, I'll give you an example. The example would be like, um, 
what's the like what's the likelihood that a middle-aged man will own a pet in, in New York City, right? Mm. That's the question, and what people tend to do, this is totally an example, yeah. but, but there's a certain set of, subset of people that tend to go into that and, say, and directly think about all those factors that could uh, affect that, that, number that, that number that they're gonna try to predict. That's the inside view. It's essentially jumping right in and taking into account all of the things immediately and saying like, let me take an educated guess from these things. The outside view is, thinking about it from an outside perspective and, and thinking about it in the big picture. So essentially saying like, if the question again was like, what's the, what are the odds, what's the percent likelihood that a, a middle-aged man owns a pet in like New York City? The outside view would essentially go into it thinking like, well, let me find out the, the uh, percentage of just pet ownership in New York City, right? And then taking it step by step, like literally thinking mm-hmm. of it from like the most high level view first mm-hmm. and then going in and then keep going more granular and granular. Uh, I think that's extremely valuable of a skill to have to like be able to take a step back right. from a certain problem and take it essentially take it like one step at a time from like the highest possible level. Uh, and I've tried doing that here a little bit, like getting people to understand that like most of the time, most of the time when you when you uh, confront a problem, your brain is going to try to overengineer it. Right. <laughs> that you you have to you have to get good at telling your brain no let's take a step back here and actually think of this from like a really, really simple, simplistic high level, right? Mm-hmm. And then peel, peel the layers of the onion, right? Um, and I think that's actually, that's actually worked here in a sense of, uh, we've gotten a lot better at predicting things like uh, how many things we need to get in, in the top of the funnel, et cetera, like that. Um, just by being able to take that step back and, and understand that like, uh, not all factors matter immediately, right? We can, we can take a step back and say, I think we, we've gone over this recently where, we just know two simple conversion rates, yeah. and we can make a pretty accurate prediction from that without having to jump into the gory details of like knowing each individual factor that could possibly affect that conversion rate, right? Um, I know that's not like a specific analysis, but it's more of a mindset that's like really paid off lately. Uh, so yeah. Uh, you use a term there, which I know we use a lot internally, but I don't know if it is as familiar to the outside world. You said number of things we need to get in the top of the funnel. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, essentially that means like num- the number of uh, I, I guess I can still use things. Number of, of people or prospects that we have to bring in, mm-hmm. uh, essentially, to that we know that the, the raw number of people that we have to bring in to, to make sure that we get what the desired output at the end, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so for us, that's you know leads that end up converting to a certain. Yeah, that's numbers. leads, opportunities, things like that. Got it. Cool. Um, yeah. So I think that that forecasting one makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. It's super valuable. Uh, what about the, the flip side of that? And something where it was really hard or you had to put in a lot of effort and then it ended up not paying off with a really successful outcome. Sure. Uh, I think that uh, this, again, this may be a little bit more high level than I'm looking for. I think that uh, you, I'm sure you're all from, we're all familiar that um, like machine learning is taking yeah. like a huge, it, it's just this looming cloud right now. And like everyone wants to be doing something with machine learning, right? Uh, and even like enough to a lesser extent, just uh, like regression modeling and, and things like that. And, uh, I think that one thing we tried to do here uh, at one point was essentially to give some background here. We have something called Olga that essentially helps our customer success team by uh, providing them like early indicators of a client being successful or a client b- being in danger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we built this system on assumptions, like things we think are good and bad, which is totally fine. You know, that, yeah. that's plenty fine. Like, I, I honestly believe sometimes, especially in this case, that human beings do have a very good judgment and very good insight into these things. Uh, the issue is that we, we jumped immediately into wanting to verify that all of our assumptions were correct. Um, the problem being that uh, what we found out later is just we, we just didn't have enough data to do it, right? right? We, we jumped into it with these really, really advanced techniques of uh, confirming that the variables we chose actually had a significant weighting in mm-hmm. in the in the outcome, they actually could predict a churn or a happy customer, um, and we realized very quick, quickly that we just didn't have enough data to actually make that model that that technique valuable. Um, and I think this is actually like a, from a, uh, again a higher level. I think this is an issue that people don't think about enough, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that right now the state of affairs is that everyone again is like super excited about machine learning but the reality of the situation is that few people have actually figured it out I think mm-hmm. uh, the people certain when I say people I mean companies um, a few companies have the volume of data 
uh, and the technical expertise to really make this this work. But I think that people, the industry right now is pushing machine learning into a economy that's not, that the most of the people aren't ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense of like the volume just, it will be there, but it's just not there yet for most people. Uh, and honestly, sometimes even the technical expertise, even though that can be, that can be fixed via like making a tool, making it easier. Right. But the problem is a tool can't give you more data. That's, that's mm-hmm. the issue. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, essentially the answer to your question is uh, when, when there's been a few times that one, particularly when we've tried to jump right into the like statistical modeling and uh, and yeah, statistical modeling, modeling world uh, without taking a step back beforehand and, and thinking about, wait a second, do we actually have enough here to even make this worthwhile? So Interesting. And uh, do you know like when we will have, like what would need to change for us to have enough data? Or is it something that's like just realistically never going to happen for us to actually I mean, this, it's, it's, a, it's the waiting game. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, thankfully, with the beauty of statistics, you can actually know how much data you need uh, to, to you know, to, to prove a hypothesis correct or, or incorrect. Um, machine learning is a little bit different. It, it, it just becomes more powerful when you have more data. Hmm. But you can, the nice thing about like doing regression modeling is you can tell the weakness or strength of a model uh, based on like how much how much data you have. Uh, right. You can see if a model's unstable or if it's stable or not. And uh, with the amount of data we had, it was just every everything was unstable. Hmm. So uh, the, the answer, to answer your question more directly, uh, I don't know when we're gonna have that correct amount of data, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not too far away. Okay, that'll be cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there any tool that uh, you use like all the time and would just like totally destroy your productivity if it were taken away? Uh, this may be like a little bit simplistic of an answer, but honestly, my my SQL client, my uh, right. Postico, uh, we mostly run well. We run off run Redshift. Yeah. So and Redshift is a Postgres database, uh, and Postico is a Postgres SQL client. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's that may be the most simple answer in the world, That's but great. I think I think it's a uh, I think SQL is one of those tools that is just so commonplace and also so useful that people often forget just how useful <laughs> SQL is. You know, right. it's a, it's a beautiful language, uh, and I don't think I, I wouldn't be able to do really any of the exploration work that I do now without that tool, mm. um, or honestly any kind of SQL client. Uh, other than that. I mean, I mean, all the tools that I use really matter. It, it's yeah. really that's a really hard question to answer because taking any of the tools I use out of the equation would essentially topple the house of cards, right? <laughs> like I couldn't take one out right yeah. now, or at least of the three notables that I have, which is uh, Postico for exploration, data exploration, and, and, and view creation reasons, uh, pipeline, RGMetrics pipeline for uh, infrastructure reasons, mm-hmm. and mode analytics for uh, again visualization and, and analysis reasons. Uh, those are the three main tools I use mm-hmm. right now, and I really, again, I think it's more of a house of cards situation than it is yeah. anything else. Where if I take one out, the other ones don't function, or they become less. Uh, there's less utility there for the other ones. Got it. And what do you what do you like about Postico? Like why that one as opposed to any other SQL? Uh, yeah, that's the thing is that it's just I think it's just the one I landed on. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, that being said, it's a, it's a very simple, it's a beautiful tool. Yeah. So. Okay, I, I may check it out. Yeah. Um, so you've got this house of cards, uh, which is you know teetering on the edge of, of destruction. Um, what uh, when you think about success for, for you and internal analytics at RJ Metrics in general, like what does that look like? What does what does it mean for that function to be successful here? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so success is is uh, for me is a, is personally a, a little bit different and maybe a little strange to what other people mm-hmm. would consider success. Um, I consider the more of the technical stuff, like just maintaining the infrastructure and, and things like that, my responsibility, mm. not necessarily what defines my success, right? Mm. So if, if I could if I could put that a little bit differently, like if I if a year from now we look back and we said, wow, our 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 infrastructure never had it had very little downtime and we always had all the data sources we needed, mm-hmm. that's not really success to me. It's yeah. just I did my job. Like I, you know, right. success. Like if that were to break, you would be failure. <laughs> yeah. But, that not but, it's, is not, but not breaking is not success. I know that's a little bit of a weird thing to I, say. I think that makes sense. Um, success to me, and this is, this is something I feel very strongly about, is really it's changing the way that people consume data. Uh, and that's a little bit broad of a, of a, yeah. a term, uh, idea. But essentially, what I think happens too often in the conventional, the traditional BI culture, is that 
analysis is often presented in in I, this is maybe a little crude, but like in a vomit format, right? Yes. Which is like, we did this analysis. It's great. Here you go. There, like there it is. Yeah. Done. Here you go. Here's a chart. Right. Uh, I think that is unbelievably suboptimal, yes. right? I, I actually think that um, if we look ahead five years from now, I think that the idea that we have of, of BI dashboarding right now is going to be very different. Mm. Um, I think someone will come in and put more of an emphasis on the storytelling aspect of analysis and, and data science uh, and make it accessible to the business world. I think that's something that we don't think about enough is when you do these analyses and you and and you combine them in a, in a space that uh, everything you need, all, all the information you need is together, not many people have the, the skill to actually take a step back and say, if I didn't know anything about this, could I come in and understand it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's actually a really important thing to think about. Um, especially when, like if you're in my role, uh, part of the responsibility is making sure that anyone in this company can look at anything we we do mm-hmm. as far as analysis goes and understand what they're looking at. Um, and again, I think it's a, it's a neglected fact in a lot of companies. I think that um, success for me would be making sure that someone outside of this company that has no idea right. what we do could potentially look at a, a group of analyses that we have and understand the story being told. Does that, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah. I, think I think it's a great success criteria. Yeah. Uh, how close do you think we are to that today? We are actively taking steps okay. towards that. Um, I think we have a long way to go. I think yeah. I think it's it's one of those things I think is actually rather groundbreaking. To be honest, I think that uh, I, we're definitely going to be on the forefront of this new uh, this new world, this new idea of mm-hmm. bringing data storytelling to, to business practice. Um, I think we're close. I think the, we're executing on some ideas right now that are I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, like so, what? Uh, so my first, the first attempt at this yeah. is we actually, uh, we're going to be presenting our analyses on, in more of a, it's going to be in, essentially embedded in an internal web page okay. that we use. Uh, and the web page is totally customized to actually tell a story with the data. Uh, it, it's very much laid out. You can actually think of it, it's laid out in like a New York Times sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what the website does is... It's, it's focused on high-level questions and then breaking down those high-level questions into the sub-questions that can answer them. So just as an example here, uh, we started the internal webpage for our, analyzing our help center, like getting a better idea of what our help center is and how it's functioning. And one of the high-level questions is how engaging is our content? Is our content engaging? Mm-hmm. Now that's a question that like anyone in this business could potentially have, right? But the problem being is like, that's a question that could potentially have a lot of sub-questions in there right. too, right? That's right. not a question you can answer with one chart. Um, and I'd argue that maybe it could be answered with a dashboard, but again, like if I'm if if I'm someone outside of the help center that's curious, or excuse me, outside of who deals with the help center that, that still wants to know about the help center, uh, a dashboard often like isn't gonna help me, yeah. right? Because I'll go in there and there's really, there's often no context provided into how these charts, how the combination of these charts are answering my question that I actually have, mm-hmm. right? So what we're doing is on this website, we're breaking down that high-level question into a number of sub-questions, saying like, which content gets our most viewers, right? Uh, how long do users spend on the content? Do they read the whole things? What's the average percentage of certain pieces of content that are actually read by the user? Uh, and we're actually presenting these analyses in a way that the question is placed right next to it. All the context for answering that question is placed right next to it. So it tells you like, here's why we decided to ask this question. Here's why this question matters in answering the bigger question. Here's what the data to your left is showing you. Here's what it's not showing you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's addressing all those things that a user could look at the actual chart and right. ask, right? Um, and then it's providing the data as the supporting material there. Um, and again, it's, it's it's relating all of these sub questions back to the original question. It's it's really it's it's just it's it's telling a story with what yeah. you're you're trying to do. It's 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 giving the user the context they need to really understand uh, how all these analyses fit into answering that that high level question. That sounds totally awesome. Have you talked to Ben Garvey about this already? Yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I think you'd be into it too. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, I think that is extremely interesting and it's definitely like pushing the state of the art forward. You also talked about there's some stuff that, uh, you know, is necessary but not sufficient. Like, you know, there's the fact that the infrastructure works. How, uh, how's your time split between like, plumbing and making sure that you know things aren't broken to this like creative 
thing, which is, you know, how ought to how should we be looking at data and consuming it in the business? Yeah, so the making thing, making sure things aren't broken portion of this, I'm very, very lucky to say that I don't spend a lot of time on that because no things often aren't broken. That's good. <laughs> uh, it, it's, yeah, we, we very rarely have something that is actually is actually broken. I would say in that regard, like the infrastructure part, more of my time is spent figuring out how we're going to collect something. Okay. <laughs> that's that's a little bit different. Uh, there are very often, all the time what happens is uh, Somebody wants to look at something new, which is actually a very good thing to look, start looking at, and we realize that we're just not collecting the data for that kind yeah. of thing currently. So a lot of my time is spent thinking about like, uh, okay, well, how can we start collecting this? Mm -hmm. Where will it go? What format will we store it in? But yeah, uh, I'm not. It's not often that I'm thinking about how do I fix this major oh, yeah. malfunction that's going on. Um, so I guess I would honestly, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say that probably only like. 30% of my time is spent on actually like infrastructure hmm. stuff. Um, lately it's been a little bit more, uh, only because we're currently in the process of moving all of our stuff, uh, when I say stuff, moving all of our databases into the pipeline tool hmm. so that we're, we are totally running off of, via pipeline, uh, running off of pipeline uh, and making sure that everything we need analytics wise is in the same Redshift data warehouse. Um, but I expect once that's finished, I expect it to go back to probably like 20, 20% worrying about infrastructure and 80% creative things and analysis. Got it. Cool. And where, you said you, you want to move it into all, all into pipeline and all into one Redshift data warehouse. Where is it now? Sure. So uh, we are in a state where everyone here got very excited about Redshift. Yeah. Uh, rightfully so. Redshift is, is very fantastic. Uh, but what ended up happening is... <laughs> We, we kind of did this weird thing where I'm sure like everyone knows that one of the great things about having a Redshift data warehouse is being able to put everything in one place, right? right. Everything you need analytics-wise can go in one place. But again, we got so excited about Redshift that everyone wanted a Redshift. Right. So it, it, we ended up in this backward scenario where we all had Redshift to put all our data in one place, but that just by means of us all having Redshifts, all of our data was in different places. And all of us is like different departments. Different departments. Uh, so what, one of my main goals right now is to reverse that <laughs> yeah. and say, let's all put it into the same, the same one. Uh, and that's going totally fine. Uh, and I'm kind of like, at, at the same time, I'm making sure that all of the data sources we need are all running through the same uh, mm -hmm. pipeline account into the same Redshift. So. Got it. Yes, and I'm very excited about that too. I think we're all super we're excited right. about that. <laughs> very excited. Yeah. Um, you talked about figuring out like how you're going to collect the data or where you're going to store it. Um, can you talk through just like a, a recent example of that, or just any case of like what how you chose to collect some data and, and store it somewhere? Sure, I can actually talk to an example that I that we actually haven't figured out a solution for yet. Okay, <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe I can. Yeah. Talk <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So when I'll take you through the the flow here. When a client signs up for pipeline, yeah, right. Uh, we have. This, this job that kicks off, that essentially it kicks off an initial sync of all of their data. Because we need to bring all of their original data in, right? Yeah. And then after we bring in all of their original data from all those sources, then we get into the, the flow of like, you know, only bringing in new rows, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, the problem is we would really, really love to have a way to be able to predict what tier a client will fall into. And, and what I mean by that is we actually, for those who don't know, we price based on a few things, one of which being how many rows someone's replicating per month. Mm -hmm. um, again, the issue here is that we have 14 days to be able to predict what tier that person will fall into, and our predictions are heavily skewed by potentially this huge initial sync mm -hmm. of data, right? We are actively trying to figure a way out to um, exclude that initial sync and only really base our predictions off of how much they're, they're how much data they're replicating after that that initial sync of data? Right. Um, we haven't figured out a great way to do that yet because the way we, the way that we record how much data is being replicated for a client is in batches, right? So a batch comes in uh, and essentially the batch tells us how many rows were replicated, um, but there's nothing telling us like, oh the okay that's the end of that first sync. Does that make uh, sense? So, so like that first sync, it will be made up of many 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 batches. batches. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so there's not really, it's, it's not like it gives you one row per, like, sync. It gives you one row per batch. Huh. Uh, and and like, you, like, per, like you said perfectly, is uh, that, that initial sync could be made up of thousands of batches. Yeah. Um, so one of the ideas we had was to take potentially a, a snapshot at the very beginning saying, mm -hmm. like, this is how many rows this person had in this connection at the beginning of this sync. Yeah. Uh, and then 
grabbing that snapshot in the database and saying, once the total batch number surpasses that original snapshot, that is when the, mm, the yeah. prediction part of this can take off. Uh, because as of right now, it's just it's extremely hard to predict where someone will fall when you have potentially a, a massive number really skewing the prediction. And do you, uh, is it important to get that prediction on the first day? No, that's, but the thing is, uh, again, we, we only have 14 days to do right. it. Uh, and the worry is that that 14 days, there's not enough data inside there for it not to be thrown off by a huge number. Does, mm -hmm. does that make sense? So like, it's yeah. like the, the small numbers idea, right? It's like, right. Uh, if we had a million observations and one was massive, then I'm not worried about it. Right. The thing is we could potentially have a hundred observations and one massive, or we could have 50 observations and one massive one that right. actually does have a chance of throwing things off. Got it, yeah, because the thing I was thinking, which is a very stupid, simple way to solve it, is just could you just rule out the first day? Uh, we, oh, we aren't always sure that things will replicate within that. Does that make sense? So oh, like, cause if you have like a totally gigantic data set. Well, one, if you have a gigantic one, but also what if I add in another integration on the third day? Ah, uh, tricky. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I guess you could do the first day, first, <laughs> first day, day for of each integration, but yeah, it gets more complicated. We get into a, a place where we're just trying to think of solutions. Right. Back, we're, we're trying to think of backdoor solutions to something that we should actually just get in front you of. You should just build. proactively record. Exactly. But, yeah, okay. So. So yeah. we haven't actually had we, we, that the idea that I brought up of taking that initial snapshot yeah. is something that we're actively looking into, but right. it hasn't been implemented yet. Right. Uh, so that, but like that's a perfect example of something that I that started out as a request from yeah. a team here, the product team specifically, came to me, and I was responsible for being I was the one responsible for saying would love to do this, mm -hmm. but we need to figure out a way to actually record it and have yeah. an accurate have an accurate method of predicting. Got so. It. Interesting, and so that'll that'll just get stored in some database somewhere, and then we'll replicate that into exactly, and then that's what we do that. Yep, got it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, hmm. And is there something that is part of your part of your job now, or part of, or something that you have to do manually now that you wish you could buy a tool to do or outsource to a third party? The only thing that I have to do manually still, and this is just because I think a lot of companies still live in this world in some regard, us, yeah. us probably a lot less than others, uh, it is very hard to get everyone in the organization out of spreadsheets, out of yeah. Google Docs. There will always be some level of a Google Doc somewhere yeah. or a spreadsheet somewhere. Um, and as of right now, handling that is still manual for me uh, as far as like making sure that I have all the data imported into our Redshift. Uh, the way I'm doing it now is I'm, I'm just pushing to S3 mm -hmm. and then having S3 dump into the Redshift database. But again, these are things; these are still manual processes on my end that I could I could set up I could set up mm -hmm. schedulers to do this. Um, but it's hard to set up a scheduler for something when you don't know it exists. So, so, yeah. uh, so basically, uh, that portion of my job is relatively manual, but it's more of a behavior change. It's more of a culture change than anything. Yeah. Uh, and that that culture change will come. It's it's a matter of getting people to understand. That they don't have to live at a spreadsheet. Yeah. They don't have to live in Google Docs. You know, there's there's a there's a better better world out there. Uh, so yeah, I think I've seen some brilliant company's piece of marketing collateral that had a big guy pointing saying you have a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a very 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 uh, smart marketing campaign. Yes, brilliant people. Mm -hmm. um, what's what's an example of something like what's in some of those spreadsheets that matters? One thing. One thing that's very, very hard to get people to get out of spreadsheets with is goal data. Uh, uh, goal data is one of those things that doesn't really conventionally live in databases. Yeah. Like, there's no one, there's very often, there's not someone on the back end entering those numbers right. into a database. They're often entering them into a spreadsheet. Right. Uh, so goals are one of those things that it's just extremely hard to get people out of spreadsheets with. Uh, that being said, I'm not actively looking to get people out of spreadsheets with goals. What I am trying to do is consolidate goals into one place. Yeah. I think that is more often the killer for people than having them in spreadsheets. I think, I think very often companies have their goals in different places and what happens is there's a, there's a conflict of truth, right? There, right. Again, there's, like, there's no real single source of truth because people see multiple goals in multiple places and they're not sure which one's the right one. Um, so I think goals have, have been my, the bane of my existence for yeah. so long as far as like trying to get them into one centralized place, uh, but I, I think we're getting closer with yeah. that. And so the, the real thing you want is people to at least make you aware that these things exist. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah. like, secondarily, you want Pipeline to support Google Spreadsheets. Yeah, I mean, that'd be, that'd be fine. Yeah. I, uh, 
I, I theoretically have no real issue with setting up a scheduler to yeah. push to push these to S three. But yeah, that'd be that would be much a much much easier solution. Yeah. Um. I and really what I want is is I would love to have the tech. I really want the culture change. That's yeah. what I that's what I think is more important. I think. Yeah. Getting people to live in one centralized place right. uh, is more important to me than actually having it go directly into a redshift all the time. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, what about the flip side of that original question? Like, what uh, is there anything that we're outsourcing to a third party or we're using a product for that you want to, either you personally want to take ownership of or you, you want the company to take ownership of? Uh, that's a really good question. I think that there's... I don't know if there's one thing that we're currently doing that mm-hmm. we're outsourcing to a third party that I would love to take ownership of. Um, one thing that I think I could see, mm, that's, a, that's a really tough question to answer. Um, I'd have to say my original, my original, my immediate answer would be no, I don't okay. think. I just don't think we often use third party tools that I would, I, I'm thinking like, man, I would love if we just took the still run yeah. ourselves. Uh, what I do think is that there will be a time and place uh, in our development cycle with Pipeline where we start to worry more about monitoring hmm. monitoring tools. Because what I think will often happen is, I mean, we do we do a level of monitoring now, which I think is perfectly sufficient. But I think as, as clients, our client base starts to grow, yeah. I think that they're going to be demanding of better monitoring tools. Um, and I think that there are other people out there that offer really, really great uh, data warehouse monitoring tools yeah. that, will, that we will see clients build themselves to run on top of the Redshift, hmm. when in reality they could theoretically just abandon that project, not have to worry about putting the engineering resources out, right. uh, and get it all through our Geometrics pipeline. Interesting. And I don't know that, do you, do you know the names of any of those? Uh, I, I, I'm, it's escaping me right okay. now. There's there's three I know I know of, but I just cannot remember yeah, their names. Yeah, three exist. Yeah. Cool. Uh, excellent. Um, latency. Latency of data. How how does that impact impact you and your ability to do your job? Uh, latency is massive. Yeah. So I I was a I was a denier. I was a latency denier for a long time, um, in the sense that I coming I, I when you're an, when you're an analyst, sometimes you can have a little bit stubborn of a view yeah. when from the inside and thinking to yourself like why does it really matter if like the data is not there for two hours? Yeah, you know because to us it's that's not the exciting part, right? Like mm-hmm. the exciting part is actually getting the insight. The latency part isn't exciting. But what you have to realize, again, it's just that it's it's a being able to take yourself out of your own body and step back yeah. and put yourself in someone else's shoes and try to understand like, well, why does latency matter to this person, right? right. Like what are they getting from this? Uh, and what I've realized is that latency does matter from, especially from a management perspective, right? Um, what you find is that if people, if people, can't get the insight in a matter, and it's this, what I've come to realize is like, anything that's, that's above a day yeah. becomes extremely less valuable. Um, mm. Because it seems like people, people like to be able to go to, the, go to an analysis within the course of a day and see what happened in that day. Right. Right? It's just, like, it's just a, a natural thing that we like to do. Um, and also what I've noticed is that it's not directly correlated, but I think that there's definitely some level of correlation there between how much you trust data and how the level of latency there is. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, it may not be warranted, and it's probably not justified, to be honest. Right. I, like, there's nothing there that tells you, like, just because your data's uh, 24 hours behind, it, you can't trust it. But I guarantee you, in the field, in practice, there's mm-hmm. definitely a correlation between how much someone is willing to trust the data and what the latency is on it. It just seems that like that's the way it is, and that honestly may be a, that may be a more of a fault of the person delivering it than the person consuming it. Right. But it just it seems like that is often the way it is. Um, latency is just one of those things that if you it, it just instills it instills. It inspires people to get more use out of the data, yeah. right? Uh, if someone has the ability to know that they can go in and see data that is 15 minutes old, that gives them more of a reason to go in and do mm-hmm. that, you know? Um, so while I think, part of me still thinks that, yeah, maybe it's not the most important thing in the world, uh, it does instill some level of higher trust and utility in the data, I think, so. And for you personally with the data that you're working with now, uh, are you satisfied with the latency? Do you 
it, you know, is it something that you're investing time in to make it better, or is it something that there's no nothing to be done and it is what it is? Uh, I'm satisfied with our latency now. Uh, we we largely have just about like a 15 minute to 30 minute late, latency for all of our data sources, okay. which I think is totally fine. I think yeah. honestly, anything under that, I think people are starting to get a little bit uh, too picky right. with their their latency. I don't think any decisions are being made in 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's a good spot for being able to manage people. So for example, I think that that kind of latency is very important when we have teams that are very concerned about daily goals and hitting yeah. daily goals, uh, which we do. Yeah. And we have teams that are actively loading charts up every hour of the day right. to see where they are for the day. That is where I think latency starts to make a huge difference. Is right. that team can under If that team loads up their, their analysis at 1 p.m. and sees that they're eight behind, like they know it's time to it's time to ramp up for the rest of the day because they have a daily goal to hit. Right. Uh, and again, that that is only possible when you have a, a low latency, like a, a an hour or a thirty minute latency. Yeah. So. And, and I could imagine. I mean, I think there's some use cases that are just very different from us. Like if you have some like algorithmic ad bidding thing, like then yeah. you need like fifty minutes latency would be paralyzing in that. Exactly. Case. So but like for our kind of use case, I totally yeah. Agree and with you. and that we're getting into that was would be more getting into like the the real the streaming data yeah. aspect, like the real time like Kinesis. Amazon Kinesis right. is, that's essentially what it's what it's built to do. Uh, and we just we just don't operate like that enough right. here. Uh, we just don't need, we don't have need to to be yeah. honest. But I think that the main difference from a high level is uh, latency, in my opinion, is extremely important for monitoring. Mm. It's less important for actual analysis, actual analytics. Yep. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Okay. Got it. Interesting. Um, if you could choose, if you had, like, had a magic wand and you could choose to answer any question right now, what, what question would you answer? Uh, here's a question that I actually heard from someone else. Why do you never hear about regular wands? Why are all wands magic? That is a great question. Like, what's up with just regular wands? So that is what a conductor uses to conduct an orchestra. You're it's right. It's called a, I don't know what it's called. I don't know what it's called either. It's, it's obviously wand. not called a wand. It's not called a wand. I mean, I have access to all the world's information here. You would think, like, from if someone, if an alien came down yeah. and asked about wands, and he just, that alien consumed all the information from our culture for the past 20 years, mm -hmm. he would think that there's no such thing as a non-magic wand. Yeah, which I think is probably not that far off. <laughs> uh, okay, this, this is not the sort of question I was, I was expecting, but I think it's just as important as anything that you do on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, what could I, what actual question would I want to, to answer right now? Uh, and a conductor uses a baton. A baton, yeah. yeah. It's almost like the, the wand committee got together and decided, yeah. like, we can't let this harm our reputation of being magical. Exactly. They have to be called something different. It's like how, you know, champagne is only, like, it's, it's sparkling white wine that's it's, only from this one part. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I learned uh, that from my school. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the question is, the question is, what question would I want to answer if I had yes. a magic wand? That is a good question. Thank you. I certainly don't want to answer that one. No, I think we went into it already. Um, I love speculating on what this industry as far as BI will look like in mm -hmm. five years. Yeah. I think it's a hugely interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that anyone has truly figured it out. And I, I think I, gave, I showed my cards a little bit of mm -hmm. what I think about what it will be earlier. Right. Um, but that, to me, that's what I like talking about the most right now. And I think that there's gonna be this huge intersection that, that, that arises maybe within the next year where the, the, the New York Times of the world, the, the people that are getting really, really good at telling stories with data intersect with business. Because mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's happened yet. I think business is largely lives in its own world right. of consuming data or presenting data. And I think that uh, journalism has started to figure out this, this this better method, this more context-rich method of presenting it, and I think those two worlds are going to collide soon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, yeah, one thing, like, I definitely see the appeal of that. Uh, I just, and maybe this is just the way it'll be, and it's fine. But like, it seems so much like it requires so much more effort. Like, yes. uh, and so, like, I don't know if there's, like, do you think that there will be tools that will reduce that amount of effort, or is it just that? Every business question is going to get, like on average, is going to get a lot more effort put into answering it and presenting the data. I think that there will be tools to make this easier eventually. I don't know what those tools are going to look like. I don't think anyone else knows what those yeah. tools are going to look like, but I think there will be tools to do it. Um, 
to answer your question, I don't think, I think there's a line to be drawn, right? I don't think that every business question needs to have a story told around it, right? Like, let's say, for example, if you're looking, if you just want to know a very, very narrowly or narrowly focused answer to a question, something that literally the rest of the company may not even be thinking of, may not want to know, I think that in that, that aspect, you can do an analysis on your own and not have to present it in a large story fashion. I think it's more of the, it's, it's the analyses that are literally just fundamental to understanding some, mm-hmm. some aspect of the business, right? Um, I think those are the ones that will require yeah. the most effort to put them in a, a story context. Um, but no, I don't think that every analysis will have to be right. provided in a story context. And it's almost like if, something, if you're doing something for public consumption, or right. consumption by people other than yourself, because if you, if you are the person writing the SQL query or the machine learning algorithm or whatever, you do not need the context because you have it because you're making it. Correct. Uh, it's if like you want to provide it to other people and ideally on a longitudinal basis where like there's gonna be someone coming and looking at this in six months. Yep. And it's worth it. I the question I always pose to people when uh, they ask me like you know should I include this should I put this, can you put this in a dashboard or things like that is does this add real value to the story you're trying to tell mm-hmm. right if it doesn't right. then do not add it it's a it's a waste of space uh, if it does then figure out a way to present it in a in a in a way that really adds true context. Right. And, and I think this also uh, makes me believe that um, like vertical specific point solutions will have an even bigger role to play. Because like one of the, like we use a tool called Preact. Mm-hmm. And Preact, it's like, uh, it's in that same universe as Olga, like helping you determine use and you know, potential churn and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's like, the context is the same basically every time you use it. Yep. So they can build the UI so that it provides that context. And like you could argue maybe they should do something differently, but like it's a very different problem to build a tool that reports on a specific kind of thing all the time than generalized context giving. It's very hard. Yeah. Um, one of the, the hardest things I've had to do so far, and again, we're still in like the very early stages of trying to do this. Right. One of the hardest things I've had to do is, again, take myself out of my own shoes. Right. What what happens is when you're exposed to all this stuff and you know so much about all the aspects of the business, you get a little bit of tunnel vision and you lose your outside perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, constantly I have to step back and say, if I didn't know anything about this, could I come into this and at the end of it understand, like get the picture, right. get the big picture and understand what's going on. Uh, if the answer to that question is honestly yes, then I think you did your job. I think mm-hmm. you're successful. Um, but you have to be very critical. You have to look at it with a critical eye and say, right. like, what questions would I have here? And that's another that's another hard thing is is stepping back and saying, if I just read this, what questions would I have now? Mm. You know, um, it's 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 putting yourself in the mind of the viewer and trying to predict what questions they will have, and that can often be very difficult. So, I, I think I think we have the title for this podcast, which is David Wallace's biggest problem is that he knows too much. <laughs> Oh man, I wish that were true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, that does make sense, and I think that is like I mean that's the thing to do when you're writing or when you're visualizing. Like that's that's yep. the, the most important thing. Um, if your current job became unavailable for some for some reason, uh, what would you want to do? That's a really good question. So, uh, am I working on the assumption that I couldn't get this job anywhere else? Like, if this job just went away here or everywhere? Ooh. That's a great clarifying question. I did not think about that. Uh, this you can't get a job like this. This okay. this this function ceased to exist. We've developed software that has automated everything that you do, which is you it's know really the case that all humans will be in in three to five. Years. Yes, uh, I would. I would love to say that I would pursue my passion of writing music mm-hmm. the rest of my life. Um, competitive beard growing. Competitive beard growing is another one. Uh, younger David Wallace figured out that. Uh, doing music for a living is potentially a a, a less than useful uh, way to live your life, um, and maybe less than realistic as well. Uh, but if this job, what could I? What would I truly do? I think that if this particular job became unavailable, um, I would probably move more into the the journalistic side hmm. of data. To be honest, um, I think that that area is unbelievably compelling mm-hmm. and it's becoming unbelievably more useful in a world that data is just accumulating at a rate that's faster than the rate that, at which we're learning to handle it yeah. and we're learning to comprehend it. 
Um, I think the people that are on the forefront of on the forefront of finding these new ways to, for to get people to comprehend and and consume data mm-hmm. are doing amazing work right now. Um, so, so yeah, you, th- you think maybe like getting a job at like five thirty eight or the New York Times infographic department or something like that? Yeah, I think I think everything they're doing right now is really amazing. I think yeah. that they're they're forward thinking people over there. So that's super cool. Um, is there anything that you would like to make sure people check out, like uh, hmm. product, service, job opening, anything hmm. that you want to plug? That's a really good question. Um, I want I want more people to read Medium. Okay. I think Medium is. Don't get me wrong. It is yeah. not like no one knows what Medium is. Yeah. I think Medium is incredibly valuable. There is definitely some garbage mm-hmm. on Medium, but. More often than not, I, I love being able to get that, just like get so many different perspectives from people. Yeah. Medium is this really, really amazing ground for that, that allows people to really just go in and tell people what's on their mind hmm. in a, a blog-oriented format, right? Um, and you see, what, what I've noticed is that there's just this, this real level of, of honesty on Medium. Yeah. I don't think people are scared to expose how they really feel about things. Hmm. Uh, like I said, not everything on there is great, right. but I've certainly had enough experiences where I've read something and been like, that was super genuine, sincere, everything about it was honest, and I have a new perspective on this subject uh, that makes me really wish that more people went on there. And honestly, it's not even just a matter of going on there and reading things about, reading articles about what you like. It's a matter of going on there and reading articles about things you don't know about, hmm. right? Um, I think that's hugely valuable, just from a widening your perspective stance. And how do you how do you find good things to read on Medium? Do you just go to the front page of Medium, or do you follow people? Or? Medium does a relatively good job of suggesting things yeah. to you. I think um, I, I learn you quickly learn that there are people that put out consistently good content, mm-hmm. right? I think you I think honestly comes down you take risks. You yeah. take risks and you read something. If it doesn't pan out, move on. Mm-hmm. If it does, then read the other that person's other content, right? Um, I, I, I think Medium is an amazing exploration ground for finding really, really honest and sincere content. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Can you think of, do uh, you remember any either authors or articles that you'd recommend? Uh, to be honest, one, it's actually a company that I've been really impressed with lately. Uh, I think Intercom is putting out great material on Medium. Okay. I know Medium's not their only source of putting out content, sure. but that's consistently where I find their content. Yeah. Uh, Intercom has impressed me so much with their the level of honesty and insight they provide through their Medium post. Uh, they don't try to bullshit anyone. No. Um, I think it's really good. I think that what they're doing is is really great. So yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I've read one or two things, but uh, that they put out. But I will check out more of that. Yeah. Uh, have you ever written anything for Medium? Uh, I have not written anything for Medium. I uh, actively am looking to write something for Medium right now. Uh, awesome. It's more of a time thing than anything. But yeah, I would love to. Great. Uh, where can people uh, learn more about you or follow you online? Like, what's your Twitter handle? So my Twitter handle is uh, relatively easy. It's at David J Wallace. Uh, pretty easy to remember. Other than that, uh, I have some content out uh, on Mode Analytics blog. I think you can actually also get to it through through RJ Metrics website as well. Um, but I think for right now, the, the best place to the best place to find stuff from me is through my Twitter. So, and again, that's at uh, David J Wallace. Cool. Uh, anything that I didn't ask or interesting stuff that you think would be to talk about or, uh, you know, curses you want to say? <laughs> uh, great question. Um, I think that was extremely comprehensive uh, and uh, I'm, I'm happy with it. Great. Yeah. I'm, I'm extremely happy with it. <laughs> I am I, very glad that I got the, the opportunity to remember all the stuff I did in grad school. That proved to be more of a challenge than I thought it was going to be. I, but. Think, I think you handled it very well. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, all right. That's, uh, that was David Wallace. I'm Jake Stein. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at RJ Metrics HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.